Hi everyone, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Ronan Davis Fay. I'm the host of this show, the Climate Proof Food Podcast. I'm also the founder of Climate Proof Food, an online platform dedicated to building connections between plate and planet. For me, this means educating others about our food systems, what we can do as individuals to make sustainable food choices in the age of climate change, and how we can use our consumer dollar to drive change and positive impact. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Bill Bellotti, Professor in Food Systems at the School of Agriculture and Food Science at the University of Queensland. He has more than 30 years experience in leading agricultural production systems research in Southern Australia, Western China, and Eastern India. His expertise include agronomy, climate variability and change, farming systems and integrated approaches to food systems. His research interests include the application of life cycle assessment methodologies to Australian food systems, including the development of concepts such as sustainable diets and food footprints, as well as the promotion of healthier, sustainable and equitable food systems. In this episode, we'll be discussing the impact of food production on the planet, the Australian diet, transitioning to a more planet and people friendly consumption, improving equity and fairness for producers along supply chains, food footprints and many other things. So without any further ado, I welcome you to another episode of the Climate Proof Food podcast. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me and taking the time to have this discussion with me. Thanks, Um, Roman. It's a great opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. And I've really been inspired and have to say more thanks for what you're doing towards promoting healthier, more sustainable and more equitable food systems. So I'm looking forward to this discussion while we in the time that we have. You're currently the professor in school, professor in food systems at the School of Agriculture and Food Sciences at the University of Queensland, um, and that's also part of the or part of the Global Change Institute. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what the Global Change Institute at UQ does and what they're focusing on? Yes, so um, Global Change Institute is a is a small research institute representing all of the research capacity of the University of Queensland. So it's been deliberately established to not sit within the normal faculties. So the university is broken up into faculties. So there's a faculty of science, faculty of humanities and the arts and social science, faculty of medicine and so on. Um, But the GCI is is designed to address global challenges like food security. Um, And these global challenges don't sit within any disciplinary faculty. And so it was deliberately designed to sit above the faculties uh, and not be sort of um, captured by any faculty disciplinary perspective. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting institution. It, it's only small in itself and it, it tries to draw together academics from various parts of the university to focus on a specific issue. So, you know, food security is a good example because, you know, you need people from agriculture, you need people from public health, you need people from environment, you need people from business and economics, Uh, you might have someone from law, you might have someone from engineering. Regardless of their academic background, you know, they may have an interest and something to offer in in improving or even transforming uh, food systems To what you said at the beginning about, you know, um, healthy, sustainable and equitable food systems, which uh, 
when people say that, I always like it. And I'm reminded of Carlo Petrini, who wrote the book uh, Slow Food. He's an Italian and he was living in Rome when McDonald's opened up. And, uh, and oh, I don't like this. You know, <laughs> he's, he founded the slow food movement and he called it, called it uh, good, clean and fair food. Sure. So good re relates to healthy, clean to sustainability and fair to equity. But I think in many ways his, his simpler words are better. So good, clean and fair food systems. That is a bit easier to understand some in the simpler terms. As academics, we like complicated words. <laughs> yeah, and this is easy to, like, it's important to make it for accessible and stay out of, or not stay out of it, but find the jargon that works for everyone sometimes as well. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Thank you. And it sounds so sure we'll touch a bit more but how addressing food systems involves like an integrated approach and is not something that's addressed from one discipline or one sector and that's mm. where perspectives are changing and we need to look at it from multiple lenses and areas yeah yeah um touching on food security uh the next thing i'd like to sort of start here um and you've got by the sounds and from what i've read plenty of experience in leading agricultural research, uh, agricultural production research in Southern Australia, um, Western China and East India. Um, would you like to give a little bit of an overview on our history as a country in terms of food production as, or as an export nation um, and sort of in the context of climate change and like how, how that might change come the year 2050? Yeah, okay. You, you like uh, big, complicated questions, but that's fair enough. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think that's good. But let's, let's start with Australia, Australian agriculture, like yeah. you suggest. Um, Australia is a relatively small population, 23 million. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's not even as big as one state in China or India, you know, much smaller. Um, and we have a relatively large continent. So you put those two things together, and if you look at uh, arable hectares, uh, agricultural land per person, Australia is one of the highest in the world. So we have something over two hectares per person, which doesn't sound a lot, but it is on a, on a national, uh, international comparison. So we have a lot of land per person for growing food, and we do grow a lot of food. And so we're a net food exporting country. And there are not that many countries that are, you know, there are many countries that export food, but they also import food. And Australia does that as well. We import food, but we're a net exporting country. Mm -hmm. So uh, the rough figure is about 70% of um, what we produce is exported each year, which is pretty amazing. So that's a lot. So, yeah. 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 So, um, that varies from year to year, you know, with droughts and so on, but that's average figure. Um, so what it means, it has a lot of implications. So one of them is that as an exporting country, our, our farmers sell our products on the international market. So they're subject to international competition, international prices. So if the international price goes down, our farmers get a lower price. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't align with their cost of production. You know, their cost of productions are probably going up and the price they receive might be going down. 
you don't have to be an economist to know that that's going to be difficult. Um, the other thing that is fairly, not quite unique, but Australia again stands out when you do an international comparison, is our farmers have a very low level of government subsidies. So many countries around the world, particularly wealthier countries like the United States and Europe, uh, very wealthy developed countries, they subsidise their growers to a high level. So, you know, they, I've heard stories of sheep farmers in Scotland, in the highlands of Scotland, their main source of income is the government subsidy, not wool or meat or something. Oh, wow. So, so when Australian farmers without those subsidies are competing internationally against countries that do have subsidies, you know, they're really up against it. And as a good patriotic Australian, you know, I've, I've worked in many countries, including Europe and America, and I used to think as an Australian that the subsidies were a bad thing, subsidies for the farmers. But having seen what subsidies can do, you know, targeted subsidies can maintain rural landscapes, you know, the environment, uh, rural communities. I think if you're a wealthy country, which Australia is, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have subsidies for your farmers uh, rather than let what we're doing in Australia is letting them struggle on an international market with low subsidies, with highly variable climate, even before factoring in climate change. And you add all that together and it means it's very, very difficult for farmers to make a profit on their capital. You know, so Australian farmers are described as asset rich. You know, so the value of their assets and land is quite a lot. And so people think they're wealthy, but they're often they're income poor. And um, I, I really have gradually come around to the position that as the burdens we're, or the challenges we're putting on our farmers are actually too great. And this um, exposure to international markets without subsidies is too great a, a challenge for most farmers. I mean, not saying that uh, some farmers, perhaps even many farmers, do make a profit, and, and some do very well, but a lot don't. And you know, we we hear stories of farmers being forced off the farm because they're not profitable, and um, Economists will say, well, that's just um, how it should be. You know, that's, that's uh, the, the economy working. In the dairy industry, we've had decades of sorting out, you know, fewer and fewer dairy farmers. And, you know, economists use acute term structural adjustment to describe that. But really, there's a lot of heartache. And, you know, it's not just a business closing. It's a family, uh, uh, you know, multi-generational family attachment to the land and to the herd and so on. So, yeah, it's been, it's a pretty tough uh, gig with Australian farming. Sure. Looking out to 2050, I think you were saying in your question, mm -hmm. that's quite a way out, but, you know, it's 30 years away. I guess not that far. We, we know from projections of climate change and already experiencing climate change in Australia, hotter, uh, drier, particularly drier in the southern areas of Australia, where most of our agriculture is currently. It's going to get wetter in the north, according to forecasts. So hotter and drier will make rain-fed agriculture and irrigated agriculture because there'll be less water for irrigation, even harder. So, yeah, the, the future looks pretty grim for a, a lot of areas. And some people are saying that, uh, you know, the margins of dry land farming, so you know, wheat, sheep areas uh, are going to come 
further back. You know, so farmers that are on the margins now will not be cropping, they'll be just grazing. And so there'll be quite large shifts in, um, you know, current sort of land use in terms of grazing, cropping and so on. So, yeah, big changes associated with climate change. Um, there's some opportunities as well. Like, you know, I mentioned North Australia might be wetter. And so there's a lot of interest in moving agriculture into the into north and the, and the the government's funding research to look at that feasibility of that but that's not going to be smooth sailing you know we have a history of trying to do to establish agriculture in the north and um, it's not a very pleasant read you know there's lots of failures due to pests and disease or ex climate extremes uh, lack of infrastructure lack of markets but we are aware of those things and so I, you know Overall, I'm optimistic Northern Australian agriculture will progress, but it's not going to be an easy sort of challenge. Yeah, and that just op that opens up a whole range of other areas, isn't it? It is, yeah, it's a very complicated question with like Northern Australian agriculture, I guess. If it's increasingly warm, it means there's increased pest resurgence as well throughout the year. So that period where there's likelihood to have pests just becomes longer and the season's in the north there's already more or less two seasons anyway but and opportunities for transitioning from mainly wheat production in some areas which is one of our biggest sources of exports is that's our biggest export uh, and then livestock and ensuring that we'll have to start transitioning to practices that maybe aim for lower yielding and less in intensive <clears throat> yeah so the, the, the big exports in australia now are meat and then wheat and you know there's i think sugars up there um wine and then other crops like barley um canola and you're right you know that that might need to shift in the future because a number of factors but one of them is our ability to produce them might change with climate change and other things but also markets might change as well so you know demand for sugar products might be less in the future because uh, you know internationally people are <clears throat> excuse me people are recognizing that you know we're consuming too much sugar and so sugar is looking to transition into other products you know rather than sugar for human consumption to energy and other things um, similarly there's there's threats to the future of the meat industry um, it's part, partly coming from say diets but um, you know people concerned that some some people eating too much meat some societies but also technology like um, plant-based meat synthetic meat insect-based foods that will all compete as a source of protein in the future so i think um, the meat industry in australia has a few big challenges facing it but that's not saying it won't be there in the future you know i, I think its future will be as, as a high quality source of protein and there'll still be markets for it but, but i think it'd be very different to mm -hmm. today yeah and if the cell-based meats for example technology increases at a rate that every other form of technology has over the past number of years mm -hmm. which has been exponential then from my understanding that's inevitably going to drive down the cost of production because of the reduced amount of land that you need for cell-based meats um 
there's still a few questions that seem to need to be asked, but it sounds like that things are progressing quickly with sourcing the mediums for it, whether that's still... I think overall it seems like the resources required, the inputs are going to be substantially less significant than traditional meat production. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's hard not to agree with you. you know, I think that's right. Um, the technology is moving faster than anyone imagined. Like a couple of years ago lab-based meat or cell-based meat was making global headlines, you know, uh, and people were sort of dismissing it as sort of science fiction. Now it's commercially available, you know, so it's um, it's gone incredibly quick. And um, the advantages are many, you know, so there's, um, as you mentioned, environmental advantages, less environmental impact, uh, but also ethical advantages. So people, um, you know, concerned about an animal welfare sort of removes that. Um, there may or may not be nutritional advantages. So you could, if you're manufacturing something, you can add desirable and remove desirable aspects to it. So, yeah, I think, and price, you know, so it's likely to be a lot cheaper. So if you add that up, it's, it's hard not to see it really dominating. But given all of that, I think there'll still be demand for an, a natural product and a traditional product. So, but that... You know, that's, that's a very real challenge for the meat industry and it's Australia's number one agricultural export at the moment. So, <laughs> and, you know, they're well aware of it and they're working on it, but, um, yeah. There's got to be a transition to a range of meat sources, if, say, going down this way, where there'll be plant-based meats for people who still want those products but don't want to actually eat meat. Probably, maybe some cell-based meat, I think, quite likely. And then, like you were saying, there may be a upper threshold which people still want real like grass-fed beef for example but i think the price may go up and um it'll also have to be produced in a way that is regenerative and in a way that hopefully can score carbon credits and all those new schemes that are coming around so to make sure that it's whether it's carbon neutral or really good points roman and uh, i think they're all active research questions and I think quite likely they'll, you know, they'll be solved or, you know, improved. So growers will be able to do that. And in, so while we're sort of on this and you mentioned how in the future we might, with cell-based meats, you might be able to essentially modify the nutritional content and probably things like saturated fat so that it's less harmful or, for, or less likely to develop those non-communicable diseases. Yep. But that sort of fits that yep. sustainable diet where it's finding foods that are ticking off all of those boxes. They're not causing any suffering like internally or any non-communicable diseases in people. They're being produced in ways that aren't preventing future generations for further production. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they're all potential benefits, but the actual product doesn't necessarily have that. You know, I've seen some papers analysing, you know, the, the nutrients and, you know, the contents of plant-based meat and they can be less healthy than actual meat, you know, because it depends on what people are adding in there as flavour additives and all of that. So there's a lot of uh, change happening, a lot of technology, uh, but it, it will still require investigative research and it still requires um, food literate consumers, you know, to sort through all what's available and make 
informed decisions. So yeah, the technology is going to change things. It'll be very disruptive, as you pointed out. With it's just accelerating, and it will in food as well. Um, that more and more consumers will need to be aware of that, I guess. And Do you think that consumers at the moment uh, have the like, generally speaking, the education and are food literate in making decisions that tick off those three boxes, say, that are good for their health, for the environment, and ensuring that farmers are also getting a fair deal? Um, you'd, have to say, you'd have to say no you know, in, in general. I think the, the proportion of informed or food literate consumers in most places in, here in Australia is quite low. Um, you know, most people are what I would call passive consumers. You know, they buy what's on the shelves or what's offered in the in the restaurant or what's advertised. And you know, that's um, and a lot of people don't want to sort of um, think a great deal about their food. You know, they they just want to eat it because it tastes good or it's um, cheap or it's convenient. And, you know, they're probably the three biggest drivers of people's food purchasing behaviour: price, convenience, flavour. And, um, you know, advertising companies spend millions, maybe billions on adver food advertising every year, and they don't do that for no reason. You know, they know that they're being effective in promoting their products. So, yeah, but having said that, that the general level of food literacy is low, there is a minority of people, and, and I would say a growing minority, that are very aware of um, food choices and, and very deliberate about what they're doing. And I think that's growing. Uh, I think it's particularly um, in young people and it's part of a broader movement of sort of responsible consumption. Uh, that younger generation, I think, is perhaps fed up with political leadership failing to deliver on, on the environment. And so they say, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm take responsibility for my own actions, in, including food consumption. And uh, I see a lot of promise there. A lot of, you know, I feel quite optimistic about the younger generation leading positive change and including in this area of changing diets and food behaviour, like uh, reducing food waste, reducing packaging waste, you know, plastics and so on, um, shifting diet from, you know, to reduce meat consumption. And I, I, I sort of hesitated then, you might have noticed, because I'm, I'm careful not to tell people what to eat, you know, not... I'm never going to recommend you should eat this diet or that diet. But all of the research I've read tells us that shifting from a, a an Australian diet, which is, you know, eats meat and mixture of stuff. Oh, let me come back to the Australian diet in a minute. <laughs> but the, the Australian diet, let's say whatever that is, um, shifting from that diet, which includes meat, to a vegetarian diet reduces your environmental footprint quite a bit. And shifting from a vegetarian to a vegan diet reduces it yet again. So it's pretty clear to me that in terms of environmental food footprint, uh, that is pretty established. And me as a professor of food systems, I feel like I should be moving that way myself, but I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan. And, uh, but I have reduced my consumption of meat. Um, there's a, oh, I forget the word now. Um, there's a word that describes people like me that reductarian or something. Reductarian, yeah, I forget the term, but there is a term to describe that. And I think by doing that, you can make a big reduction in your environmental impact. 
And the reason for that is quite simple because we eat, you know, we have three meals a day. So that's three opportunities every day to reduce your impact. So you do that every day and it's cumulative across, you know, many people and that becomes a big impact. And I think young people can lead that and be, be very effective and it can happen quicker than we imagine. So there's, there's top-down change to the food system, like governments making regulations, but bottom-up as well. And I, I'm pretty optimistic the bottom-up thing can be very effective. But, but it needs food literate consumers, really, <laughs> to drive it. And that will either come through, also depends where the government stance is on what necessarily constitutes food that is, whether it's saying it's, oh, it's not bad for your health, but... Meanwhile, they're not taking into consideration the environmental impact. So for things to have more of a top-down effect, they using more of a systems thinking approach, which I'm not necessarily sure if that's happening enough yet. That bottom-up pressure will probably accelerate that yeah, no, definitely a little not, bit more. Not happening. Yeah, look, I, I think change can come either way, but it's more effective and it's going to be you know, at greater scale if, if the top-down and the bottom-up are uh, seen from the same sort of book um, and that you know in, in times they can be in direct conflict and that's that's when you get sort of misinformation and you know people confused about what to do and so on but if if they can be reach some sort of consensus then I think you get the best outcome but that that doesn't necessarily happen <laughs> I wouldn't say generally speaking but no I wouldn't at all but you know some people have ideas about what food is necessarily bad for them, whether it's things that are high in fat or sugar, which sometimes eating it might not be a choice. It might be something that's more readily available because it's more affordable. Um, but in terms of people becoming more food literate in the environmental aspects and um, improving their food choices on how they can reduce their food footprint, um, you've done a little bit of work on like carbon footprint labeling or land use labeling do you think that might be an option down the track yeah i i think food labeling uh, with environmental guidelines would be a step forward but there is reluctance on a part of authorities to do that and um you know the the australian dietary guidelines are an excellent sort of source of information on what is a healthy diet and um, they've debated whether or not to include environmental guidelines in the dietary guidelines or to to incorporate environmental criteria in the dietary guidelines. And this debate is happening around the world. Some countries are doing it, you know, including, so for an example, what we're talking about is dietary guidelines might say eat fish once a week or something, because it's a good source of nutrients and certain things you can't get elsewhere. But if everyone did it, uh, we don't have enough capacity, you know, the sustainable fisheries um, harvesting would not sustain that. So it's sort of pointless to recommend something if, unless it can be achieved. So that's a, when we're talking about um, healthy diets from sustainable food systems, that's, that's sort of what we're talking about. Uh, so the dietary guidelines around the world are considering these things and trying to, you know, incorporate environmental criteria in the dietary guidelines. Uh, it's contentious because some people argue that dietary guidelines should only be about health, they shouldn't worry about the environment. And um, 
some people that are arguing that have vested interests, you know, so it could be the beef industry in America pushing back against guidelines that you should reduce your meat consumption because of greenhouse gas emissions. And they say, no, no, we don't want any of that. We don't want anything that's going to recommend reducing consumption of our product. Same with sugar and things like this. So in Australia, you know, it's the dietary guidelines are reviewed every so, so every few years, they get a committee of experts. And the last time they did this, they considered environmental criteria. In the end, they decided to leave it out, but they did include a, uh, an appendix which talked about it. But I think inevitably it will be become mainstream. And, uh, and then, you know, you need, well, how do you, how do you communicate to consumers about this? And so again, in, around the world, there are various examples of uh, labeling that, that provide some guidance to consumers. Labeling is another area in itself, you know, linked to um, psychology of com consumers and choice purchasing behavior. And, you know, I myself, I don't want to go into the supermarket and spend, you know, half an hour reading a very detailed label around a whole lot of criteria on health, environment and equity. Uh, and then say, I'll choose this one or that one. Now you just want to run in, in and out. And so labels have to be fairly simple you know, like a stop stoplight system, a red, red, yellow, green, based on different criteria, or um, a star system. But all of these, um, all of these labelling systems, none of them are perfect. You know, they've all got flaws, and they can all be manipulated. Um, in Australia, we have the the healthy star labelling thing for certain foods, and it was supported by the Heart Foundation. But even it's contentious because. Uh, people don't, it's meant to be used within a food group or type and people use it across food groups and types and you get sort of perverse outcomes. That's you know, something that really is not healthy. You get more stars than something that is healthy. So it's not a simple thing to say, you know, we want labels to educate people. It, it requires a lot of thought. I, I still think it needs to be done, but uh, it will, you know, people that argue against it say it will add cost and it probably will. And, you know, adds more red, red tape or regulation and it probably will. But, you know, the, the trade-off is you have a, you know, a, communi a community of people that are more food literate, making better decisions with less, less impact on the environment and less public health cost. So that, that's the trade-off. But that's a, that's a complicated um, balancing act to get that right. I guess that would be, and it goes back to where the governing body who decides where the, that particular item falls on a spectrum, what constitutes for a four-star rating? That's that's good. And you know, if it's perfect, what does that mean? Is it does it only based off carbon emissions, or is yeah. the amount of land that it's using, or their water efficiency? And that's where it's such a complicated, <laughs> too many, so many variables to express in a visual. Yes, that's right. Yeah. If you just consider one variable like greenhouse gas emissions, you might have a food that is very low in greenhouse gas emissions. But unbeknownst to the consumer, it's very high in water use or something. So ideally, you want something that covers three main areas, you know, carbon, which is like a measure of energy intensity, carbon emissions, um, water use. And the third one is some measure of biodiversity loss, which is often a, a, a sort of um, proxy for that is land use. Um, so it's possible to do it, but again, you know, it's more and more complicated and so on. So, uh, but you can get misleading environmental 
indicators if you just consider one and not the others. Mm. And where that lens, like that frame ends, and that goes back to your life cycle assessment and how far along a chain do you look and whether if you're just looking at carbon emissions that are produced at the farm gate, but how it might be quite low, but are you taking into consideration the amount of nitrogen that was fixed to produce it? That's right. So yeah, in in doing life cycle assessment in food systems or or any sort of food systems work, uh, what you've just referred to is a boundary issue. So where you set the boundaries of of your particular analysis is critical. So we, we draw a boundary around a particular problem that says, okay, I'm looking at this, these issues, but I'm not looking at those issues. And this then raises the question, well, who's drawing the boundary? Who do they represent? And so that, that brings in the question of stakeholder engagement and representation. And it, in, in order to get broadly supported results, you need a broadly based group of stakeholders at the beginning to say, well, yeah, these are the boundaries around this, and then we'll support it. And we don't do that very well in general. So that's something that we would, our life cycle assessments or more so drawing boundaries and involving various stakeholders to improve the sustainability. Definitely in LCA, life cycle assessment, but also in any sort of, you know, we might be looking at um, health or equity or, you know, uh, anything sort of around supply chains, getting a broad-based representative base of stakeholders is really important at the beginning. Now, in terms of equity, we've sort of touched on... Actually, I'll go back to... um, Did you finish talking about the Australian diet, more or less? No, look, one one point I would make about the Australian diet is um, uh, the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, does surveys of what Australians eat and they come up with an Australian diet sort of survey every the most recent one showed that um, for the average Australian uh, they get 40% of their energy from what's called discretionary foods uh, which most people would call junk foods so you yeah it's very high so you're getting 40% of your energy from things like you know sugar sweetened beverages and um, chips and um, all this sort of thing now what that means is that you, you're not filling up on the sorts of things you're meant to be eating based on the dietary guidelines like fruit and veg and stuff. And, and for example, the evidence around vegetable intake is something like around 3%, only 3% of children eat the recommended number of serves of vegetables. 3% of Australian children eat the recommended number of serves of vegetables. And, um, it's partly because, you know, they're filling up on junk. And so, I mean, that's a shocking, those two figures both, I think, are shocking. And, um, you know, Australia's got around 60% of the population either overweight or obese. And that's caused by poor diet uh, and lack of activity, exercise. But diet is, is clearly implicated. And so the industry, I think, has a responsibility to own up to this, you know. So they're advertising these sort of unhealthy foods that are high, high energy but low nutrient. And it's very popular, you know, the TVs and everything's saturated with advertising. Um, but the, you know, really the, 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 
the food industries that are producing these foods are getting away more or less free. You know, they're not they're not being held responsible because they argue that, oh, well, people are free to choose. You know, people have free will. They don't have to drink Coca-Cola or whatever, and they don't have to eat whatever it is. And so this argument of free will, but, you know, the it's clearly a nonsense because they're spending all this money on advertising to subvert free will, if you like. <laughs> um, yeah. So we really need the same sort of budget promoting a healthy diet as we do these people advertising these unhealthy products. Uh, and that we're, you know, nowhere near that. So the private sector, I think, has to become ethical and, you know, needs to start with producing healthy products. And it needs to be, you know, it needs to include um, advertising, self-regulation, well, not self-regulation, but restrictions on advertising to people um, that are maybe vulnerable. Um, you know, there was a, there was legislation not long ago about restricting advertising of junk foods during prime time, children watching times so after school into the evening. And so the, the industry says, yeah, we've done that. We've done that really good. But then you notice the advertising on the internet has gone up for the same products. So they're getting rounded. You know? So they need to take these things on board in an ethical way. And I think they won't be held account until the public sort of demands it. Because I don't think the government will lead that sort of thing because it could be seen as anti-industry or something, even though the public health costs are huge. Yeah, and not being whether you're like if one's only aware that obesity and overweight is a detriment to one's own individual health, and that's the one concern more so than the cost that you're paying later down the track, based on how that large scale like they're generally food commodities that go into those highly processed foods, which yeah. tend to come along with a variety of practices, um, unsustainable practices as a generalization. Um, but then also the cost that people are paying without realizing such as more taxes going towards public health care, which is in the billions of dollars in Australia. Yes, it is. Yeah. I, I haven't got the figure figure on in my head, but I, you know, I've written about that and um, yeah, it's in the billions. So not only does proper labeling or improved food education improve sustainability at times, depending on how the food's produced, but it saves us money. And that was what you were saying as well by whether it's labeling for the environmental footprint of food, but then by putting on the consumer, they're sort of avoiding responsibility or by putting on the consumer, it means that the, the practices and things that they're doing don't need to be considered by others. So that's where there might need to be a reevaluation. Yeah. Look, let's say, Raman, about about this um there's been several international very high level international reports that have looked at our food systems and and there seems to be a bit of consensus forming and that what they're saying is that food our, our diet and food is the single biggest cause of morbidity and mortality in the world that's unbelievable so the food we're eating is killing us more than any other single factor it's pretty incredible. That's one big point. And the second point is, is the food we're eating is contributing the largest component, largest sort of single sort of activity towards our environmental footprint. So 70% of water use, fresh water use, 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, 
and the vast majority of land use, which is biodiversity loss, to do with agriculture and food. So those two points, and, and just those two points are massive. You know? Single biggest cause of um, ill health, morbidity and mortality, death, and single biggest cause of environmental degradation. And based on that, they, they conclude that we urgently need to transform our food systems. So it's urgent, and the key word is transform. So they're not talking about a little tweak here or there, which I call incremental improvement. They're talking about transformation. And transformation is difficult. You know, it's like um, real, you know, massive change in the system. And that's hard to do, and it's very disruptive, and, you know, there'll be a lot of losers as well as winners. And the potential losers, you know, the people with vested interest in the current system will resist it strongly. So it's not an easy or light thing to suggest let's transform the food system. Um, some people argue that transformation can only come from outside the food system rather than from inside because the people inside it have vested interest and in inertia to change. So, you know, if you're looking, looking for transformation to come from outside, where are you looking? You know, um, alternative options, you know, like you mentioned regenerative agriculture a few times, you know, but it's not just production, you know, it's the supply chain and it's the way we consume food. So there is a lot of momentum and calling for change. Um, the pressure's building. It's not clear how that change is going to come about. Building. Seems to be happening slowly and like you were saying, this it's not, the food system is not just production, although that's where a large part of the impacts are derived from, in my understanding, through irrigation, land use change for grazing and for feedstock production tend to be some of the biggest, release the biggest volumes of yeah, carbon think, into the atmosphere. I think that's right, uh, but you, you, we can't... Um disregard you know food processing food transport and logistics and even consumption you know they, they can all consume uh, all contribute to greenhouse gas emissions and water use and so on so i think we've got to look across the the supply chain um but most research shows yeah uh, the production side of it is the biggest in terms of land use and water and not always for greenhouse gas emissions but sometimes for that as well and that's where we roping a few of the things that we've already touched on based on education because whether it's what you're eating makes such a big contribution or will impact on where how large your personal footprint is so dietary change is obviously one of the biggest things we can do and then reducing waste is another dis disgustingly large problem that would help solve yeah. or reduce methane and carbon emissions and just waste of resources because yep. food waste isn't purely what's being thrown in the bin. It's all of the resources, the inputs, the water, the land that went into that. That doesn't just happen on a household level either. That happens along all the way along the supply chain. It's left on the farm. So there's so many room areas that require improvements. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, there's a great quote from an American poet and philosopher and Farm, farmer, his name's uh, Walter Berry, and uh, he wrote a he wrote a delightful. It's a collection of essays by him, and the title is really nice. It's the title of this book is 
what are people for? <laughs> what are we for? And um, and it, one, there's, there's one essay in there called um, The Pleasures of Eating. And there's a quote out of it. And uh, many people have used this first quote. And the quote is, eating is an agricultural act. And I, I really love that because as a food systems person, it connects the act of eating to the agriculture. And so what he's saying is by eating a product, we're creating demand for it, you know? And so if we stop eating that product, we reduce demand and there won't be a reason to grow it anymore. So consumers have a lot of power under that sort of thing, but we, we don't realize our power and uh, we're not in, we're not encouraged to exercise our power by vested interest. So that's the quote, eating is an agricultural act, but it, it goes on and not so many people use this, the, the rest of the quote, but it says eating is an agricultural act and how we eat determines to a large extent how the earth's resources are used. Perfect. Yeah. How we eat determines how the earth's resources are used. And it's so true. You know, it's... Um, anyone at all interested in the environment or sustainability and so on really needs to educate themselves around food and its impact. And there's, I don't think there's any other thing you could do that would have a, a more beneficial impact than thinking about your food choices. Hmm. Yeah, so I recommend to people to have a look at Walter Berry. You can find him on the internet quite easily. So when we talk about transformation, you know, we are talking about fairly radical change and, um, and there will be a lot of resistance to that from existing stakeholders. Um, and that goes on to as well, like a food democracy model. And that's a bit of a movement that's pushing more as just essentially what you're saying, trying to, encourage people to be more active in their choices. Um, yeah, so food sovereignty? I guess there's similar. or Because um, I know that food sovereignty, where food sovereignty is having community-driven approaches where, in some sense, whether, what scale that is, right? But where they take charge of the food production and how it's managed. Yeah, so whether we call it food democracy or food sovereignty, that there would be differences. I'm not that familiar with food democracy, but uh, there'd be a lot of similarities, I think, as well. And what this reminds me of is um, the word agency. So if someone has agency, it's they um, have some influence or control over their own future. You know, in general terms. So if we if we bring it back to food systems or food security, if you have agency, you have some um, influence over how your food is produced and processed and distributed, and so on. So um, and so, people that have agency usually are people that have a more of a positive outlook on their influence on the future. So if if you see yourself as a victim and the future is very bleak, then you're likely not to have a lot of agency. You know, you might sort of say, oh, the whole thing's screwed. Um, and that's my concern, particularly with young people that, you know, we have got such severe challenges in front of us, you know, with climate change and everything else that's going on in the environment, that it's easy, it's almost logical to give up, but it's, 
I think it's really important we don't, you know, um, particularly for young people. And uh, food is food represents an area where you can uh, make some small changes that can have big effects. And so uh, there was even a research paper out a while, last year which showed that um, one of the most promising ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, so to, to mitigate climate change, was to change your diet. So changing diet was one of the best things we could do to mitigate climate change. Um, and furthermore, they found that young women were most effective at leading change around diet. And that's not surprising when you think about it because tradition, the traditional role of women has been providing food and you know, providing care for children. So they do influence what people eat. And, and they even this same paper even found that um, young women with agency, or they called it self-efficacy, but young women with agency were more likely to be leaders for diet change. So I found that that paper quite amazing, really, that it, you know, we started out talking about how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions and reduce climate change. And we end up saying young women with a sense of agency are the key. Yeah, well. So, I mean, to me, that's, it's surprising, but it's also very optimistic. And um, because enough people do that, they will get great change. Uh, and just to finish off on agency, um, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has sort of defined food security over the, you know, the past few decades. And they talk about um, this, this, it's a very sort of long definition, but it's, um, it's been written by a committee over decades. So it's got lots of words in it, and people keep adding words. Uh, but the, the current definition includes, you know, food security is when all people at all times have, I, I recommend people read it rather than me remember it because I'll leave something out. But all people at all times have access to safe and nutritious food um, to meet their uh, an active and preferential lifestyle or something. Now, that's not right, but it includes all those words. But what I'm getting around to is that just recently, this year, a few months ago, they've added the word agency as, as a dimension of food security. And what they're saying is agency, people who have agency are more likely to be sort of empowered to, to um, have a, a healthier diet and, and to be more food secure. And they've identified agency as something that needs to be promoted in order to achieve food security. So I find that very interesting as well. That, um, so it means particularly people that are disadvantaged, which might be because of you know, poverty or because of geographic remoteness or, or age. You know, in Australia, the aged care is sort of in crisis at the moment. But, so people that are disadvantaged need to be empowered so that they have agency so they can be more food secure. I think that's a pretty interesting development. Um, I'm not sure how we got onto agency, but it, it's just something currently sort of in my mind. But yeah, I think it's really important. A bit of a stem from the food sovereignty and people taking a stand and making their own right. decisions. Yeah. Got One more reason to improve food yeah. literacy so that they can be more optimistic. I'm a big advocate for not giving up on this because it's not, as I say, no planet right. B. <laughs> 
know, we wouldn't be talking if you weren't. No, and it's even just on what we've touched on before, whether it's just as reducing some of the products that are either say ultra processed or like your red meat or your dairy. I think there's a lot of push in the opposite direction saying, you know, I don't want to give it up, but you don't have to just, or not yet just reduce it. It's like, or, you know, you're not going to stop driving your car, but maybe you could stop driving it a few days a week or you could occasionally take your bike. Yeah. Yeah, the food equipment is, you know, meat-free Mondays or something. You know. And a lot of the people making a little bit of effort slowly, not yep. a select few making exactly an extreme right. example. That's that's the really exciting thing about food as a sort of environmental or any sort of political activism is that we do it every day. So there's there's three opportunities every day to to change what you do to make make things better. And, you know, can be better for the environment, better for your health and, and better for the people along your supply chain. So, you know, it's a win-win-win potentially. Off that, good, good segue. We've touched on quite a lot already about imp- making sure our food choices are good for our personal health and then the way that they're produced, also good for our personal health, but in the environmental health aspect. How can we ways that we can improve the equity, make our foods choices more equitable. Cause I think at the moment, sometimes the choices you might make at a supermarket, your purchases might only get a few cents to the dollar to the farmer, say, depending, depending where or how you buy it. So any insights onto how we can make our food supply chains more equitable. Yeah. Yeah. We've touched on quite a lot already about imp- making sure our food choices are good for our personal health and then the way that they're produced also good for our personal health, but in the environmental health aspect, how can we ways that we can improve the equity, make our foods choices more equitable. Cause I think at the moment, sometimes the choices you might make at a supermarket, your purchases might only get a few cents to the dollar to the farmer say, depending depending where or how you buy it. So any insights onto how we can make our food supply chains more equitable? Yeah, yeah it's a really good point. Um, I think the first thing, the starting point for this is to make your supply chain visible. You know, by that I mean aware. You know? So become aware of your supply chain. And that's not that easy to do, but we, we need to make an attempt and um, if you do that, you start to realize, oh gosh, you know, all of these people that are involved along this, you know, distribution, and storage, and processing, and you know, growing, and suppliers to the growers. All of these people's livelihoods depend on that product that I'm eating tonight. Um, are they getting a fair deal? And the questions usually. No, you know, and uh, the reason I can say that is we see in the media a lot um, the ACCC, the Australia Competition and Consumer Commission, I think it's called, which looks at fairness in business dealings and illegal activity, prosecutes companies. They have been targeting the big retailers recently, you know, the last few years about them exercising or, or, or abusing their power 
over processes and producers. So the, the big retailers have a business model which is to drive cost out of the supply chain. And in that way, they can sell products cheaper to consumers. So the consumers benefit by having cheaper products. So consumers are happy as long as they remain sort of see no evil, hear no evil, you know, be, remain ignorant of how they're getting this cheap food. But the people who are not uh, ignorant of it are the processors and the producers that are not receiving enough to make a living. You know, so they're being forced out. And so the ACCC is, is called this predatory um, behaviour, which is illegal, and is putting restrictions on, on the retailers to try and balance up the, the imbalance in power. But that's, you know, that's just that example. Um, so that, that's the big end of town. And, you know, um, it's got... It's a very interesting debate to follow because at one hand, you've got politicians call, calling for a fairer system. On the other hand, you've got politicians not wanting to rock the boat, um, not big industry. And so that, that's a, an example of power playing out, you know, and the ACCC as the sort of umpire is, is trying to balance this a bit better. So that's one sort of story. The, the other thing which I think is really interesting is um, new businesses, new, new entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in the food supply chain. Um, and uh, what I'm talking about is sort of direct marketing from growers to consumers. So there are a number of examples of this. One, one I'm aware of that's here in Brisbane is Food Connect. And they act as um, a distributor between growers. They go directly to growers that are local and also organic. And they take their produce, they package it into a week, you know, the seasonal, whatever it is. And consumers can buy, you know, a mixed package, various packages for the week or fortnight, whatever they, they want. And it's delivered to your door. Now, they claim that something like 40 or 50% of the purchaser's dollar goes to the grower which is much much higher than you know maybe five percent when you wow. traditional yeah something like that so it's an example of um how consumers decide to spend their dollar can you know can create a fairer food system now food connect is just one business but i i noticed recently they're employing people you know so they're employing they're growing. So more and more people are seeing this as a good thing. Uh, and that's how using your own sort of purchasing power as a consumer can drive change. Um, and I, one, one more example on this, and then that's because, you know, it's a really important area, I think. And that's the, um, the role that social media can play in this. So new ways of connecting consumers to producers um, new supply chains, um, sharing of information. And there's a lot of work going into this now from the big end of business using things like blockchain and tracking tracking project products across the supply chain. <clears throat> so, you know, I, one thing I've heard about recently, which always amazes me, is um, uh, coffee is often produced by small smallholder farmers in, in less developed countries. Um, 
in you know maybe areas where farmers are quite poor and yet we can as a consumer as an academic I, I can't work without a coffee so I'm drinking coffee every day and um, and it might come from anywhere you know some, sometimes you know where it comes from but usually you don't and so this technology that these guys have developed have um, allows me to use my smartphone to scan a little barcode at the point of purchase and up comes the farmer that grew the coffee and if I like it you know and a story you know so I'm so my family living on this farm in the mountains of New Guinea or something. If I drink that coffee and like it, I can give them a tip and it goes directly to that farmer. So I can say thank you directly. And for me, it's a small, you know, five cents, 10 cents, doesn't matter. Uh, but I, that a few people do that and accumulates can be a big difference for that producer. So this putting a face to the supply chain is really a, an area that I think has a lot of scope. You know, at the moment, our, our mainstream supply chains are pretty much invisible, you know, particularly when it comes to animals. <laughs> People, don't, you know, when they tuck into their lamb chop, they don't want to see the fluffy lamb running around the grass then going through the abattoir. That's a big no-no. Um, personally, I don't mind seeing abattoirs because I, you know, I think we should face our, the reality of our supply chains. But most people don't seem to have the stomach for that. Um, so I think technology like that can make supply chains more visible and that can, can be used to benefit actors along the supply chain and make, and also empower consumers. So, so a lot of, a lot of things will happen there fairly quickly, I think. And again, the change could be, Mm. fairly rapid and far reaching and it just helps everyone essentially as well customers know where they're getting their food from that the, the producer is being supported and their livelihoods can be sustained it also means that them getting paid fairly it means they're encouraged to stop cutting corners which might lead to practices that are not sustainable yep 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 if you really pushed financially then the environmental stewardship declines whereas if you have a reasonable sort of price for your products and you you can reinvest which includes reinvesting in your natural capital which is like regenerative regenerative agriculture so a prerequisite for regenerative agriculture is profitable businesses of course yeah. and having whether in the future say our we still we continue to or everyone, it looks like we will continue to make purchases from the big two supermarkets and whether there is a more diversified yep. sourcing through more local economies. And it will happen. Yeah. You know, those big supermarkets are aware of these trends probably more than anyone else, you know, because they have incredible databases on what people are buying. And, you know, for example, their organic section is growing as consumers want that. So. Uh, yeah, so, but again, you know, that they, the big companies need to demonstrate ethical behaviour. I think that's, if I, if, I, if I could identify one thing that could have a big impact at scale, it would be the big food processors and the big food retailers to get yeah, ethical. Yeah, <laughs> but, 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 yeah, that's right. But a lot of, 
Well, I, I don't know about a lot, but many people don't hold much hope for that. But, uh, I think, I think if enough consumers demand that, they'll follow. You know, they won't be leaders; they'll be followers. Whether continuing on that, whether it's from um, the supermarkets or local markets, do you think people are becoming more prepared to pay for the true cost of food? Because I feel like we've become so accustomed to cheap food. And we've seen that in history, how the percentage of household income spent on food has gone down because food has become a much cheaper part of our, just through production and economies of scale. Yeah, that's a really, really, really good question. Um, it's, it's hard to see broad support for more expensive food. Um, but I've always thought that's what we need. Um, and that's easy to say as a professor on a relatively high income. But, um, you know, a lot of people are not on high incomes and food is a significant part of their budget and they can't afford higher prices. And so that's paramount. So there's a few ways around that. You know, you can subsidise food for low-income people. Um, you can use taxes progressively to tax unhealthy food and subsidise to tax unhealthy food and subsidise healthy food, things like that. But I think the real solution might be a fairer distribution of the dollar along the supply chain. Because, um, you know, we, we've already mentioned that with this direct marketing of fruit and veg, where farmers can get maybe 40, 50% of purchases price compared to maybe 5% if they go through the traditional. So that's an example where the consumer's paying the same amount, but, but the producer's getting a lot bigger share. So that might be the way to do it. But of course, you know, who loses out? The, the existing, well, the processors, the retailers, the wholesalers. And um, we can't just sort of click our fingers and say that's gone and this new system's there. You know, there'll need to be transition because we're talking about food, which is an essential, you know, requirement for life. And, you know, people that want radical transformation, I think they need to be very careful about how it's done you know, to, so we don't have a disaster along the way. Um, but, there, you know, a lot of advertising on unhealthy food, you know, a lot of pack, unnecessary packaging, you know, there are areas we could remove cost um, and get healthier outcomes and maybe some of that money could go to a fairer distribution of that money anyway. So I think there's there's scope there. Um, yeah, and I guess while we're here, it's any insights on bringing longer lasting changes towards addressing these key areas? That's a, obviously very broad and sort of encompassing what we've been speaking about. Yeah, look, I don't know about longer lasting, but I, th I think... Um, Change is real, you know, change is happening all the time and change can be for good or bad. So I think we need to sort of embrace change but sort of direct it in ways that are, you know, our three themes which are more sustainable, uh, healthier and more equitable or fairer. Um, there, are, there are trends which I think will be long-lasting, you know, so the there's a trend towards healthier food, I think, because the cost of the current diet is um, becoming apparent, you know, the, the cost in terms of health. 
um, there's a lot of interest in being more sustainable and you know regenerative has got a lot of support at the moment so that's i think a long-term trend but um you know it, it needs a lot of a lot of research to to bring it to fruition at scale so um yeah so i think um it's hard you know i'm not very good on the crystal ball <laughs> but you know we can think of different scenarios and um so you know we actually the interesting thing is that we have a choice you know we can we can head this way or that way and what we should be doing is not predicting the future but mapping out those alternative sort of scenarios and saying what what do we want what's our preferred future and that and that question has to be asked of a broad stakeholder group you know coming yeah. back to what we said at the beginning um i think climate change is very instructive in this you know climate change is the area that has had a lot of debate and it's used scenarios as as a way to sort of look at future options and where you, where we need to be and so keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees is sort of one of the scenario outcomes you take that back saying well therefore emissions need to be reduced to this and you take that back and well that means fossil fuel fossil fossil resources um need to be left in the ground and and so on so you can do that sort of thing with food as well you know saying we want to reduce overweight and obesity from 60% down to 30% and eventually whatever or we want to increase increase childhood consumption of fruit and vegetables from 3% to 30% or something you know so you set these targets and then you work back from that how would we do that and um so i think that's the way to approach it and um and in order to re- reduce resistance from vested interest in in the transition to that future they need to be engaged and involved at the beginning to to what the targets are mm. enough to keep you busy for the rest of your uh, working career <laughs> yeah right? by the sound by the sounds of things right no and yeah it's, I, I think i've seen in some of your work saying just with so much importance in understanding the role food systems plays under the influence of climate change and as well as being a part in addressing the impacts at the same time which is why it's exciting yeah, like the, all the yeah, space yeah yeah the terms i use when when we look at agriculture in or food and agriculture in context of climate change it's clear that agriculture is both the villain causing a lot of climate but also the victim that's entirely vulnerable to impacts of climate change so it's got this sort of food and ag has got this unique sort of relationship with climate change that it's it's highly vulnerable but it's also a major source of greenhouse gas emissions so if any sector has an incentive to reduce impacts of climate change it's agriculture and so you know we there is all you know a fair bit of consensus on this you know even you know the meat industry is looking at ways to reduce methane and um a lot of soil scientists are looking at ways to sequester carbon uh, you know regenerative agriculture is based on building up soil biota and soil organic matter not only sequester carbon but improve productivity or the two goes together so yeah that I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic but um 
There's also a lot of bad stuff around. A lot too. of obstacles, that's for sure. No. Jeez, we'll get there, hopefully. No. <laughs> we have to. We have to. There's no, as you said, there's yeah. no planet B. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today, Bill. I really appreciate it. It was a wonderful opportunity to listen to you and your abundance of knowledge on all sorts in the food and ag area. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Roman, and I appreciate it too, you know, to talk to, to a young person that is obviously very well informed about this and concerned about it. You know, I really value this opportunity, and so I wish you all the best with your, you know, what you're trying to do and get the word out. Um, and, yeah, let's, let's stay in touch. Well, everyone, that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this incredibly informative conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Climate Proof Food Podcast. Be sure to visit climateproof.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. I've listed the individuals, organisations and resources that were brought up in this episode for you to have a look at. Thanks again. Speak to you soon.